Please remain standing. Uh, I'm Christopher Randall. I'm honored to be one of your elders here at Christ Community Church, and I have the privilege of introducing the message and praying. So we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord of heaven, during this difficult season when so many of us have experienced loss, please remind us that all is loss in comparison to the incredible blessing we have in knowing you. We confess our lack of faith when we misunderstand your purposes in bringing loss and trial into our lives. Remind us that the depth of your love for us means that we must decrease so that you can increase. Forgive us our pride and personal achievements that elevate us and thus devalue you. Help us to cast our crowns at your feet and seek your glory above all, reminding us that all we have is a gift from you. We ask that you give us a new appreciation for the incredible gift of being found in you, pressing forward boldly in a dark world with the message of your redemptive love. We pray that you would anoint Jeff to boldly proclaim your word to us this morning. We love you and we thank you for the surpassing value of knowing you. In Jesus' incredible and precious name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Christopher. You may be seated. Hey, welcome to church. Good to see you. Chris, I like those shoes. I'm waiting for you to break out into like a combination step in those things, man. (laughs) Thank you for reading the word, brother. Appreciate that. Good word. Good prayer. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can open to Philippians chapter 3. And uh, last week, we began a new series called Forward. And our message was all about looking forward, not looking backward. And we looked at Anna and Simeon. What we took away from their lives is that uh, their example is that when you're in the interim, when you're in the land in between, the last revival and the next one, what is the job of the faithful? What is the role of the faithful? Well, it's to expect, to expect God to come through, to look forward to the day when he is going to, and then to pray. Trust him to do it. This week we're talking about straining forward pressing forward, reaching forward from this amazing passage in Philippians chapter 3. And so how do we press on in, to the high call of God in Christ in the midst of such a cultural turmoil and social upheaval and maybe personal loss? So this message is going to be just a little bit more prophetic than I normally would be. Normally, I'm a little more professorial. But uh, today, I want to give you a word just a message that I feel like God has kind of dropped into my heart and dropped into my spirit. Something I think we need to be aware of. Something I think we need to plan for. And this message, actually, that Paul has us in Philippians 3 is going to help us do that. And that's this. In the coming days and years as a church, we will be tempted to get pulled into the orbit of all kinds of causes and well-meaning but superficial or even wrong-headed solutions. I'll say it again. In the coming days, in the coming years, as a church, the culture, the world... 
is going to tempt us, and we are going to be tempted to get pulled into the orbit of all kinds of causes and well-meaning but superficial or even wrong-headed solutions. And our vision must remain bedrock. It must remain true. This church is about Christ and his community. Now, I just did a quick search on Google of church names, and they're hilarious. Now, if you're watching and you go to one of these churches that I'm going to mention here, uh, I want you to know this is all in fun. <laughs> I'm just poking fun. I love you. You're my brethren. This is not, a mad, this is not a, an article of faith. This is not a touchstone of faith. I just think it's hilarious. Some of the church names that are in our... Aren't they hilarious? Like this one, I found reality. Whoa, I'm sorry. I know you guys went to that one. But, uh, I, so that's why I was picking on you. I'm just joking. Here's what I found. Here's what I found. This one is interesting. Destiny City. Don't you want to find your destiny? Oh, I do. How about intersection? I don't know what that means, but that sounds kind of interesting. Or the river. Just jump in the river, I guess. I don't know. Here's a really good one. Epic Life. Now, that sounds like a church you want to go to because you go to that church, your life is going to become epic. And then here's one kind of mystical, The Encounter. Ooh. You go to that church, you're going to have an encounter. My favorite one. I'm sorry, if you're in this church, I love you. I'm sure you're preaching the gospel. It's called Vertical Life Church. That sounds like, that church just sounds like a rocket ship, a space shuttle right to the uh, thermosphere, right? Okay, now when you leave today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just glance over at our church sign. What does it say? Yeah, baby. I figured out why people visit this church last. Every conversation I have with somebody, I literally had this conversation. If it it was with you, I'm sorry. I'm I'm calling you out. But last week, somebody said, man, we really like this church. I don't know why we made it last on our, you know, church shopping list. And I know why you did. It's because we just do not have a cool, trendy, hipster, sexy name. We just don't. But I want you to know the name that's out on that sign is what we're all about. We're about Christ his community gathered in this local fellowship. And that's what we're going to keep being about for the rest of the time that I am your pastor, hopefully which is longer than normal. Uh, Okay, so, (laughs) but we are called, what are we called to do? What are we called to do as a church? There are three planks in our vision, in our mission. I want to give them to you. The first one is, Daniel mentioned this, we are called to gather disciples to worship in spirit and in truth. Do you know who the seeker is? It's God. John chapter 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is a seeker. God is looking for people, true worshipers, who will worship him in spirit, in the spirit, and in truth. And we want to gather disciples in this room, in this building, in this place, to worship the one true God in ways that are worthy of him. We are also called, second plank, to grow disciples in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we gather those disciples here, we want to train them and equip them, you, to grow deep in your knowledge of Jesus. We want you to be the smartest Christian you can possibly be. The most biblically literate and theologically literate and informed Christian that you can possibly be. But at the same time, we want you to grow in your grace in the Lord Jesus. Your compassion, your love, your mercy for the lost. 
And then we want to scatter. We want to go. We want to go into all the world and make more disciples, gathering them in here to worship God and grow. That's, that is our mission. It's crazy simple. This is a gospel vocation that God has given us. And there will be problems that arise in our culture. I'm going to tell you right now, there will be, there are problems that, that come that this church is just not equipped to handle. And by that, I mean we don't have an answer for it. I don't have an answer for a vaccine for COVID-19. I wish we could, but I don't. God hasn't equipped us to do that. I know from talking to some of you in your jobs that you deal with a bureaucracy that I can't fathom. I mean, I can't imagine going to that bureaucracy and have to negotiate and navigate that stuff that you deal with every day. And I just want to put my hand on you and say, hey, be warm, be filled. (laughs) You know, like, be blessed, brother, because I don't have an answer for you. I don't know how to do that. But I do know what God has called us to do. Every moral, every ethical, every social and spiritual dilemma that is in our world today, the gospel has an answer for that. And we are, in fact, in our culture, only the church is equipped to solve these issues. Only the church is. You turn to any other solution and you are looking for a superficial and sometimes wrong-headed solution. You want social justice? Then read Isaiah. Read the book of Isaiah because he did too. And so does God. Read the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find that Jesus addressed it. Read Matthew 23. Whoa. Jesus lit the Pharisees and the scribes up, and those issues were social justice issues. You will find the solution to that in the gospel, not outside of it. You want law and order? Read Romans. The first three chapters of Romans, Paul will tell you how we got disorder. Paul will tell you how we got lawlessness. Paul will tell you what the real problem is in our culture and what the solution is. God's solution is the church armed with the gospel and the truth to transform one life, one heart, one mind at a time. You want racial reconciliation? Read Colossians, read Galatians. Because in Christ, you and I, in Christ, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, in Christ we are all one brotherhood. We are the brethren and the sisters of Christ. We are all one and unified in him. Now, all those solutions are in the gospel. They're not outside of it. They're not apart from the gospel. But in the coming days, I guarantee you, the world is going to put pressure on us, and we will be tempted to abandon that core message, that solution for every other possible idea. And we need to resist that. So the first thing Paul wants to tell us today is stay true to the gospel. Stay true to the gospel, verses 2 and 3. He says, watch out. Be on guard. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers, workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put any confidence in the flesh. These two verses are difficult to translate in English because uh, they involve alliteration in the Greek. All all these words begin with the same word, and he did that so he could make it memorable for the Philippians. So I'm going to translate them into English. You might, you could translate them something like this. Beware of the mongrels. They're all M-words. A street dog that scavenged and ate everything to stay alive. Street dogs were symbols of ritual uncleanliness, uh, equivalent to pigs as far as Jews were concerned. And he calls these false teachers who are introducing new ideas to the gospel, he calls them mongrels. Street dogs. 
He says, beware of the malicious or the malevolent. He says, the malicious are evil, false teachers who come in. Actually, anybody who wants to add anything to your gospel is evil. They have evil intentions, even if they don't even know it. He says, and beware of the mutilators. The centerpiece of their teaching in the first century is circumcision in the flesh, which was a sign for them, a marker of their identity. So these were men who desired to impose the covenant of Torah and circumcision on new Christians, these Gentile Christians who didn't know the Torah and they weren't circumcised. So exhibit A, the Judaizers. That's who these people are. The Judaizers are a group of people who, they're a faction who broke off from the church in Jerusalem and they would go to every church where Paul would preach the gospel of grace and start a church and the church was going like gangbusters and then they would wait for him to leave and then they would show up and then teach those Christians, oh, actually, Paul didn't give you the whole gospel. There's more. You hear that phrase, you run from that place. There isn't more. And they came along saying, actually, you have to do that and this and this too. And here were the three things you have to do. You have to be, you men, you have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised. And you have to eat a kosher diet. You have to eat according to the dietary laws of the Jews. And you have to obey festival and Sabbath observance. If you don't obey the Jewish calendar, you can't be in. So in addition to Jesus, in addition to his finished work of atonement, you have to add these marks of identity. And when a Jew in the first century practiced these three things, it was their way of saying, we're the people of God, and here's how we know it. These are our badges of identity. The markers of our election in God is his special possession. So God had revealed very early to both Peter and Paul and the rest of the church that this was nonsense. Both the Jew and the Gentile alike were in sin and needed to be saved by grace through faith alone. And God revealed that to them. So Paul makes it clear. When your atonement system is Jesus plus anything else, you've got the wrong gospel. When your atonement system is Jesus plus any of these works or marks of identity as the people of God, other than the reception of the Holy Spirit by faith, a free gift of grace, you've got the wrong gospel. And the Philippians, he says, are to be on guard against this. Guard yourself against this because it's coming to your church if it hasn't already and he states in no uncertain terms, verse 3, 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. Now, the phrase, the circumcision, is a title. Now, that's a title. In the first century, if you were a Jew, you would call yourself, I, I am of the circumcision, which means I'm a Jew. I'm the people of God. I'm part of the people of God. And he says, we are the people of God. We are. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Those who have received the Spirit by grace. We boast in Christ Jesus alone. And do not put any confidence in the flesh. So Paul clarifies what he means by circumcision. This means to be a member of the people of God. Now how, how can we steer clear of these false gospels that are constantly trying to infiltrate our gospel? Number one, we resist adding any additional work of righteousness to faith in Christ alone. Well, you might not be tempted to add circumcision or kosher dietary laws or Sabbath or festival, Jewish festival calendar stuff. But you could be tempted to add a whole lot of other stuff and really not even be aware of it. Let's go to Romans 3, verse 20. He, he says this. He says, For no one will be justified in, the sight, uh, in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. 
What does he say here? He is setting up a picture of justification. Justification is a, a metaphor. What it is is a word picture that puts you and I right in the center of God's courtroom. God is the judge. We are the defendants. The law is the prosecutor. And what the law does is make us aware that we have broken the law. The law cannot lift you. The law cannot empower you to obey it. All the law can do is tell you you've broken it. And here's the standard. You missed it. And then prosecute you when you're in the court of God's law. So now God has a dilemma. Because God is perfectly loving. Thoroughly. Fully. Loving. God is pure love. But God is also holy. You know what holiness means? It means the way God is is the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. God's being, he is holy. And there is none like him. And so as a perfectly holy God, he is also a just God. So he's perfectly loving. He wants to save you from your law breaking. He wants to save you from your sin. But the fact of the matter is, is that he has to judge you because he is a holy and just and righteous judge. Now, so that's God's dilemma. What's his solution? The only solution there can be is if someone takes your place and takes your penalty. Now, if someone were to stand in your place, voluntarily come and stand in your place and take your place and take your penalty, then, they, then God could then justify you if you just trust in what they do. And so this is exactly what Paul is telling us. This is how we're justified. Verse 21, he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets foretold it, but couldn't administer it. <laughs> the law and the prophets foretold that it would come, foretold that you need it, but couldn't administer it. In verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. That is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned, both Jew and Gentile. And falls short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? It's his standard. God's glorious holy being is his standard. And you and I have fallen short of that. And then they are justified freely. They have to be by his grace through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, God presented him, who? Christ. As the mercy seat by his blood. Now this word is hilasterion. Hilasterion. And this word means the mercy seat. It literally means the mercy seat. And that was the top, that was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. If you go back in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was made of gold. It was cast in gold. And it was atop the Ark of the Covenant. And what it did is it symbolized two things about God. The first one is that God is king. Because God sits on his throne. That's his seat. But in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, kings were also judges. So your king was your judge. And so it is also a mercy bench. And so what they would do is they would take this sort of uh, this brush and they would dip it into the blood of the sacrifice and then they would whisk it and spatter it all over this mercy seat. And here's what Paul says, Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is God's propitiation. He is God's sacrifice so that you and I can avert certain wrath and certain judgment. And that's through faith to demonstrate his justice his world writing justice because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. So the word communicates to you and I that you and I now have the opportunity to be the sons and daughters of God because Christ has stood in our place. He has taken our penalty. This is the gospel. And it's finished. When Christ hung on the cross, what did he cry out? To tell us die. 
I almost named my firstborn child to Telestai. That would have been unfortunate. <laughs> but the dude would have had a good name. That would have been a cool name. Very unique. But this word means finished, completed. The work is done. And this is what Christ cries out as he gives up his spirit. So God has presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would just be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how God is just in his judgment. His judgment falls on Christ, not on us. Now Philippians 3, 4 through 6, here's what Paul says. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, even if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh regarding the law, regarding rule keeping, uh, guess what? I have more. I have much more. Paul is saying, I don't care how good of a Jew you think you were. I don't, have, I don't care how good of a rule keeper you think you were. You can't be this good. He says, I was a Jew circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, a Pharisee, does it get better than that? Regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless, you couldn't find fault in me. I kept it fastidiously meticulously. Paul says, I was that guy. The guys who are going to come to your church and tell you that in addition to Christ's finished work of atonement, you need to keep all these rules. Guess what? I was that guy. I was that Jew. And when I was, I was lost as a man could be in religion, the hopelessness of fastidious religion. So we have to steer clear of false gospels, any teaching that wants to add itself to the work of Christ's finished atonement. Number two, recognize that we are prone to do this. Okay, recognize that we are prone to corrupt the gospel. Now, I get a little weary of the authenticity cult that's in the church today. I, I get a little weary of that. I, I appreciate that people are trying to be real, but I, some people I would like for them to be a little less real. I just, you know... Be on your best behavior sometimes. That's, that's okay too, right? <laughs> okay, so, but, but having said that, it is perfectly appropriate for all of us to, to admit that we all have this problem. Why? Because it's genetic. It's baked in the cake. You and I come into the world with a sinful nature. We are prone to wonder. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else, more deceitful than the devil. More deceitful than anything and incurable. Who can understand it? Who can understand why the sinful flesh wants what it wants? Who can understand why the heart desires what it desires? The old song said, Lord, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I do feel it. That's why I love that line in that old song. Because I have a metabolic urge to distort the gospel. I look at it and say, you know what, Lord? You know what this needs? <laughs> This needs, I got an idea, you know. <laughs> Left to ourselves, we would become accidental heretics. This is why we need the accountability of the church. This is why we need Christ community church. We need to gather in the community around the word because it's a corrective against our natural tendency to change the gospel. And this is why we celebrate communion. So it reminds us on a monthly basis, this is what this message is about. This is why we exist. This is why we're here. So his summary statement in verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, he says, I also consider everything to be a loss, all that, 
that I had gained in my rabbinic pedigree, I considered that to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All that I had achieved, all that I had gained as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, as an up-and-coming student of Gamaliel, I throw that all away. It's a loss. And that's a financial term. He lost it all. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, just street refuse, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Hallelujah. Praise God. That is a freeing message. That message will set us free. And if we stay on that message, if we keep straining forward to this message, it will be freeing for the community that comes here and hears the gospel as well. And as I read these verses, I think staying true to the gospel entails loss. Some things you're going to have to lose. Uh, teenagers, you might have to lose some friends. Some people that otherwise you would love to hang out with, but unfortunately they are poisoning your soul. They're poisoning your faith. And so temporarily you might have to lose some friends that you would rather hang out with because your faith is just not found. Your faith is not grounded in the word and you're not strong enough yet. For some of us, we're going to have to lose some ideas that we thought were really good ideas. We're just going to have to jettison that. So faith involves loss. Staying true to this gospel involves some loss. And it did for Paul. Paul says, whatever I had to lose to gain Christ, whatever I had to lose to gain the gospel, it was worth it. It cost him his family, his Jewish family. It cost him that. He knows what, how that feels. So we stay true to the gospel by resisting the temptation to add anything to the good news of Christ's singular and all-sufficient work on the cross. And we stay true to the gospel, and to do so, we must recognize that we are all prone to do this. Number two, we must persevere in the gospel. We have to persevere in the gospel. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, right before that, he says, oh, this is my life goal. I want to know Christ." And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. What a great goal for your life. And he says, well, not that I have already obtained all this or am already made perfect. But I press on to make that my own. To own that. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, man, I forget what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's his hope, his resurrection. And notice the words he uses here, pressing on. How many of you guys have run a half marathon or a marathon? Anybody? Okay, how many in the, pro shockingly few of you, right? Like, <laughs> I just want to say that on the record. How many of you have like got to a point in the race or one of your races where you thought you were a little more prepared than you were and you, you hit the wall? Anybody? Yeah, so literally everyone who just raised their hand has had that experience. And what did you have to do when, when that happened? You had to keep going. One foot in front of the other. You just pressed through. And, and, and he loves these racing metaphors. I half think that he was a racer uh, but, but, or runner in the ancient world. But he loves these metaphors. And he says, man, I get to a point where I feel like I can't go on. And I tell myself, you put one foot in front of the It's just one foot in front of the other. You keep pressing forward. You keep pressing on. And then he's saying, forgetting what is behind. I looked this up. It is surprising how many races have been lost because the guy who was in front looked behind him to see how far behind him was the second guy. 
And when he did that, he lost focus and the second guy passed him. Surprising. And so we are to be looking forward, pressing forward, looking ahead to the finish line, the finish line. And then we're to strain forward. He says strain forward. And I love this, this phrase here. It means to reach with every sinew, to reach with every sinew. With the last cell in our body to reach this finish, finish line. This gospel will cost you some things you think are true. This gospel will cost you and this gospel will call you to strain forward to reach it. Hit the tape at full speed. In a thrilling contest, the women's 400 meter final for the gold a few years back was between uh, Bahamian, Bahamian uh, Shawnee Miller, who just barely beat the, the favorite of the race, US, uh, the U.S.'s uh, Allison Felix, to capture the gold in, in a last second dive. She threw her body across the finish line and she won by one inch. I want to show you that picture. That's Shawnee. That's straining forward. That's what it looks like to strain forward. Now, I want to show you the next picture. Put the next one up. Okay, that's Allison and Shawnee. Look at both of them. Every muscle fiber, every ligament straining to win that race. Look at number three. Kind of coasting in. <laughs> like not doing that. That's what stuck out to me in the picture. This is what the winners do. And what Paul says is run in such a way as to win the race. Run in, such a, run in such a way as to get the prize. And as a church, listen, folks, as a church, you and I are going to be tempted in the coming days and in the future, we're going to be pressured by the culture to metabolize false ideas and get them into the bloodstream of our church. We should not do that. And we're not going to do that. We're going to stay true to the gospel. We're going to keep looking ahead, looking forward, pressing forward, straining ahead to win the prize of the high calling of God in Christ, which is the resurrection of the dead. Amen? Amen. You agree? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning to be able to worship in, in this free country, to be able to worship freely in this room. We praise you and we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the, the sacrifices made by so many so that we could sit here and do this. And, and that is not lost on us. But Father, we also know that the hope of the world, the, the hope for the world is the good news of salvation in Christ alone. And Lord, you have provided us substitution, a substitutionary sacrifice to, so that we may avert certain wrath, so that we may be saved from Eternity without you and for eternity with you. And that is Christ's death on a cross. And we want to say thank you for that. Thank you for that sacrifice because that's the reason why we freely sit here and worship you today. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, it begins with a confession. You confess what is true. You confess what is true about God. Here's what's true about God. He's the infinite personal creator of the universe. Holy, infinitely perfect. And you confess that that is true. And you and I were made in his image. And you confess that that's true too. But we've fallen into sin. We've fallen into sin. And that sin requires judgment by a holy and just God. And he has provided Christ in our stead. Christ in our place. Will you embrace Christ? 
That is God's world writing salvation. Will you embrace him by faith alone? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.